Well, hello again. Um, once again, my name is Marcia Horseman, and it's really good to be with you this evening. Um, our topic tonight is worthiness, and I, I think it's an interesting topic because most people that I'm walking through the, the prayer resolution process do not think that they have many issues with the, the topic of worthiness. But worthiness, is, it's like it's the mental picture that we have of ourselves. Who do we think that we are? Like um, a, a picture of our worth as a human being. How do we picture ourselves? And most people don't think this is a really big deal or anything that they struggle with too much. Um, and the reason is because cognitively, they we, most of us believe that we're pretty decent human beings, and so we're, we're satisfied with with our mental picture of ourselves. Some of us kind of recognize that we've got some insecurities, um, but we're reasonably confident. So um, the problem with that is that most of our, our sense of worthiness, when we have not built that, we don't have a good foundation of our worthiness, it, it takes the form of something else. So not having a very good sense of our worthiness might take the form of extreme shyness. We're nervous about meeting other people. We're very shy and hesitant to open up to new people. Um, we can be, become very depressed. That's also a sign of having trouble with the, the topic of worthiness. Many of the people that I have worked with have come to me very depressed, and they don't recognize where that came from or how it could be. They've been to many, many counselors and still feel like they're wading through the thick mud. Um, it can take the, the form of hopelessness. They just can't see any hope for their future of, of being happy in some way. Um, it can take the form of being in, unable to take risks. So they're, they're nervous about taking on any new responsibilities or trying something new or anything that seems like it's a little bit out of their, uh, something that they have already done before. They're, they're nervous. And so they, the smallest little barrier will stop them from proceeding. Sometimes it takes the opposite and it, it, um, will prompt them to take insane risks because they really honestly don't care about themselves. So you see them engaging in some extremely risky behavior, and it makes you scratch your head about why they think that was a good idea. Um, it can take the form of bragging, always talking about themselves, always trying to like leave an opening for somebody else to praise them, or always puffing themselves up and, and uh, forcing people to pay attention to them. It can be excessive neediness to the point where you can drain family and friends and others around you or spouses because you're just so needy. It can take the, the form of just being afraid of change, being afraid of any change. Or it can take the form of um, being superficial in your relationships, not really being willing to go deep in any relationships. So having lots of, of acquaintances and lots of people you might do things with, but nobody knows you very well, and that's done intentionally. Um, having a, a, um, not, a, a not a good sense of worthiness can also um, leave the person feeling like they never fit in. So they can avoid taking responsibility. They can avoid taking a part of a, a group or, or committing themselves to anything that's a, a group thing, like they don't want to join a church. They don't want to join a small group in the church. They don't want to join even something like a, you know, a, a hobby group, a Viking group. They would avoid taking part in any kind of a group setting because they're afraid they don't fit in and, and people won't, won't want them. Um, having a poor sense of worthiness can also mean sometimes people are very sarcastic 
and they make cutting remarks about people who are around them, and they can be hard to be around. Um, they're putting themselves down. Sometimes that's another form that it takes. They're constantly cutting themselves down or um, just saying things that are, are unkind about themselves. It can be just this, this inability to connect emotionally with other people. But in order for us to have a really healthy view of ourselves, um, there are a number of questions that we, as human beings, have to ask ourselves, and we need, we need sufficient answers for these. And if we've been surrounded with a lot of healthy people who have built this foundation of worthiness in us, we've got great answers for these questions. But if not, we struggle with these questions. These, this question is, what is my unique personality? Do I even know myself? Or am I just who I think people have told me I am? What makes me laugh? What makes me cry? What do I love? What do I hate? What are the things that um, I really am passionate about? Things that make me want to get up in the morning. What are the natural gifts and the talents that I have? And are some of those gifts and talents things that are valuable to other people? Um, or and do I have value as a human being? And what I mean by that is, am I a valuable person, or do I have to go earn it somehow? Do I have to go back to school and earn some letters after my name? Do I have to make a certain amount of money? Do I have to have a certain title to be a valuable human being? Do I have to have the right kind of friends or the right kind of uh, social circles in order to be valuable? And how do I relate to people in my world? Um, some of us have hard, a hard time relating at a deep level because we're afraid to let people know us well under the assumption that if people get to know me well, they, they won't like me. So um, we just keep all those relationships at a superficial level. The question that some people ask themselves are, am I so weird that nobody will ever really understand me? So how well will I know others and how well will I be understood? And that's a really important question because all of us have a deep need to be known and loved. And if we're loved but not known, that doesn't feel very satisfying. And if we um, are not known well, we can't love well. So the other question is, will I know other people well? Will other people be willing to be vulnerable around me so that I can know them well? We, we need this connection with other people. It's just how God wired us. Will I fit in um, in the places of my world that are important? Will I fit in in my family? Many of us have, have felt like outsiders in our own family, and that's carved deep ruts and grooves in our confidence. Um, will I fit in, in, in even in my marriage? Am I a full partner in my marriage? Does my partner believe that I am a valuable part of this, this duo that we are? Um, do I have a place that I fit in in my community or in my church or in my school or even in uh, the hobbies that I take part in? What is the place that I have? Do I have a place that's important? Um, and where am I going? What am I becoming? Will I be respected by other people? And will I be successful in life? And if I'm a success in life, how will I know when I've arrived? How will I know what that success looks like? When will I be confident that I've, I've been successful? And how will my future turn out? Um, is my future going to be determined by my past? Or can I leave that past behind me? And do I have a reasonable expectation that my future is going to be bright and happy? In fact, what makes me happy? 
these are all questions that not, won't necessarily bring somebody into the prayer resolution process. But they're often come into the, the PR process having not had these questions answered in a sufficient way. So our job as safe others is to walk them through some of those those doubts that they have accumulated over their lifetime because of messages that have been handed them. Now, it's maybe very tempting if you have been uh, working with somebody in prayer resolution for any length of time. It's, it's not uncommon for you to have noticed some of these insecurities and you have a pretty good idea where they came from. Um, but there's a reason that we wait until maybe three-quarters of the way through the prayer resolution process to even address them. These questions are are not why people came. They came for other reasons, but this is the good stuff. This is where the big heartfelt changes, the, the, the deep changes are going to be made. Most people come to prayer resolution because they uh, they really want to walk closely with the Lord. And it's just become a really hard battle. It's It's become a place where they've been stuck. They don't know how to get unstuck. They don't even know where they've gotten stuck. Um, but they know that they've been off track. And so that's the real reason why they've come. And you and I will know that some of these insecurities are where they got off track. But uh, we have to track it back to the places and events that that uh, provided terrible messages to them. I, I once worked with a woman who was, um, she's a very attractive woman. She's a leader in her church. She leads multiple different ministries in that church. Well admired, very respected, lots of good friends good family. Her husband adored her. She had kids that were um, that were doing really well in life. She's the kind of person that we all wish our kids would turn out like. And yet she, when we began to go through this prayer resolution process, three quarters of the way through, we began to look at the messages that were given to her as a child. Now she uh, had a childhood that was, she was severely abused as a little girl. Um, some of the stuff she went through is was horrific. Um, and even though she seemed like she had this successful adult life, she wrote me a letter before we started prayer resolution, and she told me that she felt totally hopeless, like life had absolutely no meaning for her. She said, my life doesn't matter. I don't care what happens in my life, and I'm not worth caring about. When we started to uncover some of the beliefs she had about herself, she believed that she was filthy and damaged and there was no hope for her. She believed she had no value as a human being. She believed there was nothing lovable about her. Therefore, it was really unreasonable for her to think that the people around her truly loved her. If they knew her as well as she wished she was known, she was confident they wouldn't love her. She believed she had to be perfect. And since she couldn't possibly be perfect, no matter how hard she tried, she was a failure, and she had given up on life because she was a total failure. I wish I could tell you that she is unique and that the other people that I've worked with in prayer resolution feel very differently, but she's not alone in that. Many, many people feel the same way, but not on the surface because cognitively they believe something very different. But in their heart of hearts, where their, their behaviors come out, they believe something entirely different. So on a cognitive level, in their thinking, they know that they are not worthless human beings. But at a heart level, they're not sure of their worth as a human. So in the beginning of the prayer resolution process, we begin to slowly go through relationship by relationship 
and to find out who are the, the significant players are in a hurting one's life. And um, if, if we take it from the beginning and, and uh, move through some of the, the issues that we've already talked about in this training, we have taken them through the process of forgiving everyone who has hurt them in a significant way through their sexual history, through their family of origin, through the, possibly their children, through neighbors, through friends, through uh, authority figures in their life. We've taken them through each one of those, those relationships, and they have systematically now forgiven everyone who has wounded them. Um, that has taken the sting out of all of those events. It's taken the pain of the event. It's taken the pain of the fallout of the, the event and brought those those feelings to neutral. God has done, at this point, a tremendous work to bring justice. Uh, you may have noticed, as you've been walking them through these relationships, some, some patterns of behavior that they've begun to adapt. And if, uh, if you've done your job, you've made notes in your margins of some of those patterns, because we'll come back to them now, three-quarters of the way through. Some of these patterns may have been noticed by them. They might... They might even bring it up, but um, as tempting as it is to address those things early, it's better to wait until we've gone through every relationship of significance. At this point, um, they have actually confessed all known sin, and they have been forgiven by their Heavenly Father, which is tremendously freeing. They're no longer at this point weighed down by unforgiveness. They're not weighed down by guilt. Um, we have walked through with them so that these these uh, strongholds and patterns of these strongholds that have had such power over them have, have been broken. And they're freed because there's so many things in life that we regret, we hate that we've done, but we can't fix it. And the power of the gospel is where, where we ask Jesus to fix what we broke. And we recognize we can't pay for these things, but we can fall on the grace of God to pay for them. And that's what he did on the cross. If you've done your job and uh, the person, the hurting one, has done all the work that, that has been required up to this point, they may be willing to say, just like someone I, I worked with, who began to laugh as we got to this point in her life, she said, there's nowhere to hide. We have, we have uncovered everything. But what we have not covered are some of the messages that came out of those events, messages that came out of those relationships that have not really been dealt with in a deep level. Um, we might have recognized some of those, those messages, but not necessarily processed them the way we're going to do now. I look at this as kind of a major bend in the road of prayer resolution. It's all been focused on relationships and events up to this point. But from this point on, we're going to be no longer focusing on relationships as much as relationships with the hurting one. What relationship do they have to themselves? Do they see themselves accurately as God sees them? Or has have the events of the past uh, really changed the way they think about themselves? So that those events that shaped their lives also shaped their thinking. And now we're going to take a, a, a deep dive into how they think about themselves. Uh, this could not have been addressed earlier. And it's tempting sometimes to, to dive into some of those things early. But when you do, um, there are things that have not been taken care of that need to be taken care of first. 
there's too much pain in the way for them to adequately deal with their thinking process. There's too many emotionally charged events that have clouded their thinking. There is too much distortion from the actions of others and too much distortion from their own sin that clouds their, their way of seeing things clearly. Um, in the beginning of prayer resolution, there's often a lot of confusion. Um, they're not even sure what stuff they own, what stuff other people own, what, what is that that I need to confess and what is it that I need to forgive and there's, there's confusion about those two things. So at this point in prayer resolution, we've piece by piece by piece and person by person sorted those things out. They know what their part has been, they know the part the other person has played and those things have been forgiven and confessed. Those are the weeds that need to be cleared away before we can start planting good seeds that are going to take root. Some of the messages that a hurting one has heard from different people in their life, different ways they've been treated, different events that have taken place, those messages have come from a multitude of sources. So they may believe that they are not a very valuable person, but that that might be a message that came from a, a parent but it's also been reinforced by others in their life. So before we can really address that thing, we need to make sure we know who all the players are who have given them a terrible message that has become, in their mind, a fact. These things, because they're confirmed by many people in their life, they often feel very true. I know that we've already covered some of the lies in another previous night in your training, but... um, Lies can take a lot of different forms. Lies can be things that we believe to be true that are not true about God. They can be things that are not true about sex, about men, about women. Um, Today I want to spend most of our time talking about worthiness. The bulk of the lies that we believe are about worthiness. So it's not so much about what we believe about about God. God is angry with sin. He must be angry with me. God doesn't care about justice or he would have stopped what happened to me. God might love the world, but he doesn't really care for me. He's very disappointed with me. Those are some of the lies about God. Or lies about sex. Sex is gross. Sex is about losing a part of yourself. Or it could be a lie about men. Men are pigs. Or women. Women are just um, parasites. Those are hard, those are things that um, you may work your way through, but I want to spend most of our time tonight just talking about lies that we believe about ourselves. Who am I and what is my ability to relate to the world? These are things that we cognitively understand are not true. And many of the people coming to the prayer resolution have a lot of the Bible memorized. They could, they could probably quote me 17 verses that would tell me the truth about how um, they were created and their, their value and their worth. And yet, at the same time that they believe these things, they also believe a, a very different thing. So they have these conflicting beliefs at the same time. Yes, I believe this is true. I think this is true. I know this is true. But um, my heart believes something else. And so it's confusing to this hurting one because 
they find themselves doing things they don't understand. They thought they had conquered this a long time ago, and yet now they're behaving in a way that's confusing to themselves. They don't know why they do the things that they do. And it's confusing to the people around them because they say one thing and they do another, and they're not consistent from scene to scene or from event to event. So they live out something entirely different than what they say they believe. The problem is that our hearts are very rebellious. We can, with our brain, command ourselves to feel differently and to believe something different. Even if logic or scripture tells us it's not true, we believe at an, um, at a deeper emotional level a, a totally different truth. And so we hold these two opposite beliefs at the same time. One of the problems that we encounter in prayer resolution is there can be a lot of shame. Shame about just feeling inadequate. We know we're not supposed to feel inadequate. We're supposed to feel confident, especially if we've been a believer for any length of time. For some reason, there's this thought out there that if you are a believer, you were supposed to have defeated all your insecurities when you accepted the Lord as your Savior. A lot of well-meaning Christians and, and teachers may teach that, that those things just fall away when we follow Jesus. Or that if you still have some insecurities, you just haven't studied Scripture well enough, you haven't memorized those verses well enough that teach us who we are. And I, I can sometimes, that can be abusive because it's like drive-by versing. Here, take these three verses, memorize them, and call me in the morning. And it, it just doesn't work at an emotional level. Because it, it doesn't always change how we feel about ourselves because we have experienced being treated very differently. So how do we build that self-image? What we're trying to do is to help hurting ones build a, build a much more accurate self-picture, a realistic mental image of who they are so that it's in line with who God says that they are. It may be very hazy at this point in the prayer resolution process because a lot of things have changed. They've recognized some of the ways in which they've been wounded that they maybe didn't recognize before they started prayer resolution. They've maybe confessed things that were so hidden in their past that they had forgotten about them. So these things all take um, a, a part of the process and play a role in how they view themselves. So at this point in the prayer resolution process things have been changing and morphing quite a bit conclusions that they may have drawn about themselves are are maybe no longer feel true maybe they never really have known themselves very well maybe they have not stopped to talk think about these topics that's that's the way a lot of people deal with heavy emotions is they just don't think about them one of the major roles that we have in prayer resolution as, as we work with hurting ones as safe others is to not just free them from the things that um, have hindered them in the past, but things that would hinder them in the future. We want to release them, not only from sins that were committed against them, but also things that would hinder them from doing the good things that God has prepared for them. There are some scripture verses that are pertinent here. Hebrews 12 verse 1 says, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. That's the first part of PR. 
And then the verse goes on to say, And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. I have a different race marked out for me than you have race that you have marked out for you. God has a race marked out for each one of us. And prayer resolution is is enabling people to start running the race without being hindered. That's the second part that's so exciting for me. When Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, We are God's handiwork. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's the exciting part for me about prayer resolution. It gets me excited because we're in the business of releasing God's children to get about the work that God has has put in place for them. We want them to feel like they are players in the kingdom of heaven because they are players. And there isn't a person who is in the kingdom of heaven that is not important in this in this um, this place. We are image bearers. We bear God's image to a broken world. If you are following along with us in the syllabus, uh, the syllabus outlines a lot of ways that we are just like God in page 112 in ways that we are like God and represent Him to a broken world. One of the major ways that we're like God is that we have a capacity for fellowship. God put that in us so that we can have fellowship with Him. He also wants us to know Him and He wants to know us well, that we'll be vulnerable with Him, that we'll we'll be um, open with Him. But it's also God's design that we have that same fellowship with human beings for another person. Um, and God did that because he wants to have fellowship with us as as uh, not just another servant. God has plenty of servants. He doesn't need more servants. In fact, he said he calls us friends. Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. We want to unleash believers into the roles that God has designed for them. Not just because um, we want them to be whole and healthy. That's, that's a good, wonderful goal. But because we want them to understand the invitation that God has given them to be a part of the family business uh, with, with God together with Him as sons and daughters. We're building the kingdom of heaven and that's a pretty exciting thing that we're called into. But it starts with understanding who we are and our self-image has to be in line with who God says that we are in order for us to take those roles. And yes, it should come from Scripture. And, and it is possible that we don't know what Scripture has to say about who we are. We haven't always been taught well of, about that in the church. Um, sometimes We've got um, self-help books, whether they're secular or Christian, that are well-meaning but kind of misleading. Uh, and they wrongly apply scriptures so that we can be very misled. But usually our distortions come from our experiences, ways that we have been wounded, ways that we have been treated that was outside of what God ever planned for us. And um, it has distorted how... Uh, what we believe to be true about ourselves. And those distortions can grow and become stronger, 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 and more and more off base from what God says that we are. And one of the reasons for that is that um, when we are treated poorly, 
and when others confirm that for us, we begin to, to build this strong belief about ourselves that is distorted. And that distorted belief then clouds the way we see new information. So as new information comes in, we've got this confirmation bias where we, we actually hear people say things that they didn't really intend to say because it's what we expect them to say. We expect them to treat us poorly because we don't believe that we deserve good treatment. So when they do something that's neutral, we interpret it as a negative. So we we begin to take in information in distorted ways, and that distortion begins to grow more and more. One of the problems is that we begin to we behave out of those beliefs, not out of what our 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 understanding and our cognitive understanding tells us, but we behave out of what our emotional beliefs from our heart level um, has has really taught us to behave. So we confuse ourselves, and what we say and what we do are not always the same thing. Sometimes we go along and we're just fine, and then something blindsides us, and we behave in a way that is totally a reaction that was unexpected. Um, We have just automatic responses to a distorted way of thinking that um, we thought we'd already conquered a long time ago. Sometimes we're blinded from the truth by our own sin. And we know that sin blinds us. And that's part of the distortion that we we get from sin itself. And I want to just remind you about the very first time that we see sin appear in scriptures when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. You remember that they had perfect intimacy with themselves, with, with each other, that God had built that right in, that they they were naked and they were not ashamed there was nothing that was separating the, t- the two of them. And yet the first thing that we see happening after Adam and Eve sinned was that they felt ashamed. And they felt this need to hide. Their reality had become distorted because of their sin. And they already distorted the way they saw themselves. Now they saw themselves as inadequate and shameful and they needed to hide from God and they needed to hide from each other. That's what sin does. Sin can really distort our thinking. That's why it's so important that when we do the prayer resolution process, we have cleaned out and had them confess every known sin up to this point because that sin is now going to clear the way that they see reality so that a new reality can be formed. When people sin against us, with highly emotionally charged events, um, it can really prompt us to draw wrong conclusions. Those messages may be overt, they may be spoken messages from people of significance, or they just be implied. Either way, we can draw some really terrible conclusions out of what we've experienced. And they may be totally inaccurate. They may be... um, like I said, out of our distorted view, out of our new um, inadequate way of of thinking as opposed to the, what the person actually intended. But either way, it's, it's um, distorted our thinking even further. We don't live in a spiritually neutral world. 
we live with with the God of this age. The scriptures call him the deceiver, Satan. And he, uh, in John chapter 8, it says he was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. We know that he lies to us. So we are fighting against him when we start talking about worthiness. He does not want us to see that ourselves accurately. And it's not a spiritually neutral battle. That's why Ephesians says this is not a, a, a fight against flesh and blood. First Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Um, the enemy is just like a lion who stalks his prey. A lion may stalk his prey for a very long time. Um, he knows where that prey tends to go. He knows a weakness of the prey. He may study it to just find out exactly where his weakness is. And that's what our enemy is like. He knows the hurting ones who are walking through prayer resolution. He knows their weaknesses. He knows their hot buttons. He knows where they've been wounded. And he will definitely take advantage of his understanding of that person so that he speaks specific lies to them in ways that he knows will hurt them the most. He knows which lies keep them ineffective. So it is our job to be aware of the enemy and how he has worked in that hurting person's life. I want to draw your attention here to page 115 in the syllabus because um, it has a, a wonderful illustration here about a healthy a healthy self-image, which is built from three different parts. It includes three very deeply held beliefs about ourselves. Um, and one of those is a sense of belonging. Another is a sense of having value. And the last one is confidence in our competency. All three of those are essential parts of building a self-image that is true about who we are and who God has created us to be. Those messages come from, as I said, not only the events that have come from our, our past, but also the way that we have been treated by significant others. So you'll hear me talk an awful lot about moms and dads, but um, other important figures would be authority figures or spouses or our own children or people that we're attached to emotionally in pretty strong ways. All of them can speak uh, to us in ways that either help or, or tear down our self-image as being accurate. So the first thing I want to talk about is our sense of belonging. Um, by the time we are five years old, a lot of this has been set in stone. And so from that point on, we're just either confirming or, or um, questioning some of the things that have already been put in place. When we have been treated well, we believe that we deserve that good treatment. When we've been treated poorly by our parents specifically, because we, we believe that's deserved too. Because our parents are so essential in our minds and so big in our understanding of how we interpret the world that whatever they do has to be correct. It has to be right. And if somebody's going to be wrong, it's going to be the child. 
so we're so dependent on our parents to build reality for us that um, we really just suck up with a straw everything that they do as as youngsters. So that's great if we've been treated well and, and with good respect and with love and care. It's not so good if we've been treated very poorly. And if we've been treated inhumanely, we believe we don't even deserve to be treated like humans. Sadly, all of us come from parents who are not perfect. And I, I haven't run across the perfect parents yet. You probably haven't either. And one of the, the um, difficulties of working through prayer resolution is that as I'm, as I'm working with a hurting one who is a parent themselves, and they recognize the ways in which their moms or dads have dropped the ball and really built some insecurities into their life, they begin to despair because, oh no, I've ruined my own children. And um, there's there's place in here for for confession of the ways that they didn't even recognize they'd hurt their own children. And this is where the gospel of Jesus becomes such good news again because we, we can't go back and... Um, go back in time and, and reparent our, our children the way we wish we could. But we have a Savior who redeems even our own sin. So when we go back to the topic of belonging, the question that will come up is, you know, did your mom and your dad give you a sense that you belonged in the family and had a place in that family? Did they express things like, I love you, I'm so proud of you, I'm so glad that we're a family, that you're in my family, that you're my daughter. If children are not told that or shown that, they believe that they don't deserve to be loved. Some parents have um, a really hard time showing affection or speaking that affection. But if a parent doesn't get that message across to their child in some way, that child will grow up believing they really don't fit in in their family that they're, they're, um, they don't have a place. Uh, one of the, the men that I worked with had never been hugged in his memory by his parents. Not a single time. He was a successful businessman at this point in his life. He had retired and sold his business off. And, you know, he was well respected in the community. Once again, he had a good family. But he didn't feel like there was anything special about him that that would set him apart as being anything unique or, or special or wonderful. Sometimes a, um, a family member, a parent, can go much too far in an inappropriate way and be affectionate with their child in a sexual way which just cuts off any potential for that to be a positive message. Some messages can be terribly um, misunderstood. And so that's another reason why we want to take careful notes about what a parent said and really try to open up what happened because our, our distortions can be great when we're young. Another way that parents can build in some insecurities is to, is to do things for one child they don't do for the other. Now, I know every child is unique and what's 
the same is not always fair, but that's not always the perception that children have. Children are hyper aware of when they are being treated in a slightly different way than their brother or their sister. And some of those are just unavoidable things. You know, they're pretty sure that their cookie was smaller than their brother's. Um, but sometimes parents can say things in frustration that have uh, huge effects. And perhaps they didn't mean it to have the devastating effect that it did. Another man that I worked with struggled with his security because his his mother told him one time in a moment of weakness, I wish that you had died instead of your sister. And then immediately, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry I said that, but no amount of apologizing could remove this sting from those words. Those words were still with him 40 years later. Um, other things that parents can say in frustration of, why can't you be like your brother? Um, or, or bragging about one son and not the other. Um, attending sports events of one child, but not the other. So, that, you know, dad's all excited to go to his son's baseball game, not so excited about going to ballet lessons. Um, that can be perceived as having less of a place in the family, like their, their, their place is in question. So being sensitive also to what, what the child is, is um, feeling, what would make that child feel out of place, either at school or at home. Many times parents are unaware of what they are neglecting in their, in their um, raising of their children. And they're trying to do the best they can to put food on the table and a, a roof over their heads. But they neglect the emotional part of a child's rearing and um, they don't realize that the message they're giving to a child is that they have nothing to offer that family. They don't have a place in that family that where they belong. Sometimes it's just omitting, telling that person, that child, that they have a unique gift and that you're proud of them. Um, what's one of the jobs that a parent has is to know their child and to know their unique giftedness and their unique talents because a child doesn't know. So when you see those things as a parent and offer that, that child a, some positive encouragement in that way, you, you're building up his confidence not only in his ability to be somebody special and unique, but his ability to have a place in the family that um, you appreciate about him. There have been times when I have worked with someone in prayer resolution and, and they describe their home life as being wonderful, ideal. ideal. Yep, my dad, he was a hard, hard worker and he provided a roof over our heads and we always had good food on the table and we had clothes and, you know, we, whatever else. But there's, there's a lack of enthusiasm there and they feel grossly like they have no, they don't fit in anywhere in their world. And if I do a little bit of digging, I'll find out that their parent, parents, mom and or dad, were just really un, um, unavailable emotionally. So I have asked them, so what is the difference between your home that you grew up in and an orphanage? In an orphanage, they provide a roof over your head and clothing and they, they get you to school and place to sleep. Did your parents provide in the emotional support that you would not have received in an orphanage? And it's 
been surprising sometimes how many adults who people who are now adults think back and say no I really didn't get much out of my mom and dad because they were emotionally closed off to me they had nothing to offer me emotionally vacations are something that children need now and then just because they need to know that their parent enjoys spending time with them that they are enjoyable they're a person that um, is lovable, likable, I'm enjoyable, or I'm not somebody that anyone ever would ever want to be around. When children grow up in a home like this and they don't feel like they're a part of their own family, they often feel like they can't be a part of any group, like no group would want them inside their group, and they have a hard time joining groups. Or they join groups for the very reason that they don't feel like they fit in anywhere else and they will join a group where um, they, they probably shouldn't. But, you know, the wrong clique at school or they can get involved in, in gangs or um, a group of kids that are in, um, just making really poor choices. Sometimes it can lead to promiscuity, uh, especially for, well, either a young woman or a young man who will get into relationship after relationship just looking for some place to belong. The problem with that is then each relationship, when it breaks off, because it's really not a good one and they're not ready for that commitment yet, it just confirms to them that they will never belong anywhere. There are other um, figures that can that can make a big difference here, either positively or negatively, and those are any authority figures, Sunday school teachers, teachers, coaches, pastors. Um, they may all cause a child to question the things that they have learned about themselves from their parents, or it may confirm what they have already begun to believe about them, themselves. Another voice that is a huge one in building that sense of belonging is a spouse. And a spouse obviously comes along after the child has grown to an adult. But because there's such a, a unique closeness to that marriage relationship, that spouse has a very loud voice in confirming or um, causing them to question whether or not they belong, even in the marriage. When a spouse rejects us, in small ways or in big ways, it can be crushing, particularly if you don't have this sense of belonging in a family of origin or some other group. Another way this is, comes about is it, it, um, one of the partners can become very clingy, trying to control the behavior of the other because they're afraid that if the, the spouse is allowed the freedom, they won't want to belong. So that person may just abandon them. And so um, a hurting one who is afraid of that might become very controlling of their spouse to be control whether or not that spouse has even a choice to abandon them or not. It's really important in a sense of belonging to um, believe that our, our love for another person is perceived by them as being important, significant. And if a spouse has rejected that love, it can be devastating. When a spouse is not affectionate or 
doesn't respond to the affection that the hurting one offers to their spouse, once again, it can be very hurtful. They feel um, betrayed, like they have no place even in their own marriage. Sometimes it can be that one spouse just is not very effective at expressing it or um, just expresses it in a different way. But we still need to accuse them of the message that they gave to the hurting one because the hurting one has not been able to receive the message adequately. Sometimes it can come just out of unrealistic expectations. We expect, because of Hallmark movies and... and uh, those happily lived happily ever after stories that our spouse is supposed to meet all of our needs. And that's not really true, is it? It isn't true that a spouse is responsible to meet all of our belonging needs, all of our emotional needs. Um, God may use them. God will use them. It's his design to use them. But um, God is the one who meets all of our needs. And when we expect a human being to meet them, even a spouse, it's nothing short of idolatry. Another thing that a spouse can do that can undermine a sense of belonging is, is telling a joke at the expense of a spouse. And probably all of us have been in a setting where you know, jokes about a spouse may be thrown around, but they're very hurtful to a marriage and they're very hurtful to a sense of belonging. Um, a spouse can refuse sex or be disinterested in sex and that is perceived by the, the spouse's total rejection and a, a sense that you don't belong in that, this marriage. Another one that I've, I've run across in prayer resolution is a, an absolute focus on children, which is not uh, a bad thing, but when you focus on the child to the point where the spouse feels like they're being ignored or misunderstood or um, invisible, it can really make a spouse feel like they have no place to belong, even in the marriage and the family. Genesis verse 2 verse 18 says, The Lord God said it's not good for the man to be alone. He said this in the Garden of Eden right after he had, he had created Adam. He had created all the animals. And everything was good. And Adam had perfect communion with God there. Perfect fellowship with God. There was no sin at all to wreck his, his, his relationship with God at that point. And yet God said that he was alone. So we can conclude from that that um, even perfect relation with God was not good in that instance because we need fellow human beings. We need to know that we have a place where we fit in, not just in heaven, not just that we're going to have a place where we belong in heaven, but we have a place where we belong here on this earth, that there's a, a place designed for us that's uniquely ours, that we fill that role, and if we didn't fill it, no one else on earth could feel it, that we are unique, and that our place is is useful and necessary. But some people have been so wounded by other people that they're afraid that they have no place or that other people won't recognize that they have a place and they begin to question that God's statement, it's not good for man to be alone, is perhaps not true. And so you need to watch for beliefs that, that a hurting one may portray 
where they believe no one will ever really understand me, no one will ever really know me deeply because I'm not worth knowing. And it may be that up till that point no one really has understood them. In fact, there have been times when I've been walking with somebody in prayer resolution and, and by the second time they will tell me, you know me better than anyone has ever known me in my life. And that's just really a sad commentary on, on the people around them that they have not taken a tremendous opportunity to know this wonderful human being that God has created in his own image. But that is often the case that no one has really understood them and taken the time to understand them. But it is not true that they aren't worth knowing. So that is the truth that we want them to to come away with in prayer resolution. And that is a, a, a truth that they will have to hear from their Heavenly Father. they may begin to believe that if people really knew them well, they wouldn't like them. And so they begin to hide themselves from other people. Once again, this might be a truth that some people have gotten to know them and then rejected them and not liked them. But it's not a true statement that that's going to happen in the future. It's not a true statement about who they really are. They may feel that they'll always be alone. And that's a a very common lie that I will run across, that I will always be alone and that's a very hopeless feeling that we need to watch out for. Sometimes when people have been so badly wounded by other human beings, they will take an actual vow. And maybe they won't call it a vow. It's, a, it's like an inner promise, a commitment that they make to themselves that I will never allow myself to need another human being. I won't ever lean on a human being or depend on them because I'm just going to be an island and it's safer that way. Or they may decide it's safer if nobody ever really knows me. Um, I'll never allow somebody to get too close. If that happens and someone has made that decision, there is nothing that a spouse can do to get to know that that uh, husband or wife in a close way because there's no possible intimacy that could be developed when there's that kind of a wall around their heart. But these vows fuel all kinds of really unhealthy behaviors. Um, It it can fuel a behavior of of being unable to ask for help or receive help when they really need it. And you'll run across people who badly need the help, but they're too independent. And it's often because they've been so badly wounded in this area of belonging. Or they can't admit that they have any vulnerability. They're Superman in every sense of the word. But it closes off any potential for a close relationship. Um, Sometimes they have determined that they will just shut off all emotions. I don't feel anything. I'm just kind of a little emotional robot. And um, that does feel better. It closes off the hurt from not belonging and not being close to somebody. It also closes off joy. It closes off um, empathy for other people. It closes off happiness it closes off a sense of satisfaction in life and life becomes really hard it closes off um, the potential for love there's an interesting verse in 1 John chapter 4 verse 18 it says there's no fear in love for perfect love drives out fear one who fears is not made perfect in love 
These people have so much to be afraid of. They're so afraid of opening themselves up to, for the potential for a relationship that they can't love another human being the way that God intends them to love. And the next verse in First John tells us that when we come to that place, we don't love another human being. We are not capable of loving God either the way that he intends us to, to love him. Other indicators where we've been wounded in that very place of belonging is that we have other kinds of controlling behavior. We feel like we need to control other people so that they keep their place and so that we can control our place in the universe. Um, And we want to control other people so they don't abandon us. I want to move on now to the second thing that is a a huge part of our self-image and that's our our value. Um, Am I a person that has intrinsic value? Am I just innate valuable? Was I gifted with value when I was born? Or is that something that I need to go and earn? Do I have to do something wonderful to be a valuable human being? It's very tied to our sense of being respected or being respectful, someone who is worthy of respect. And the question would be, if I was stripped of everything, all my abilities, all my money, all my relationships, all my talents, would I still be a valuable human being? And some of us are afraid of that answer because if those things can be stripped away, which they can, then who are we? People who have not had this concept very well secured are often terrified of losing their value because they lose their job, they lose their spouse, they lose a child, they lose you know whatever it is, their abilities, their memory, their, their athletic prowess, their, um, their looks. When those things start to fade, they become terrified because they believe that their value has diminished. Once again, I'm going to talk about parents, although uh, parents play a very significant role in building that sense of value or not building that sense of value. They're not the only ones who have a, a loud voice. But because they have the loudest voice, I'm going to pick on them right now. Um, when a child is little and expressing an opinion, sometimes his opinions are childlike, childish. But they're still reasonable because he is a valid person. She is a valid person, and they deserve to be heard out just because they're a valid person. Um, when a parent takes the, the attitude of, well, just do it because I've said, that might work okay when they're two and they really are, are not able to be working through any of the, the logic behind what it is that you need them to do. But if you're still using that logic when that child is 15, it completely invalidates him. Parents need to be willing to listen to a child's opinion, even if it's not a uh, not very logical. It still is valid because it's his opinion, and he's a valid person. Like I said earlier, one of the expectations that God has of parents is that they are experts in their child. They are student of their own child to know what they're good at, their gifts and their their passions. And they're able to see potentials in their child that the child probably wouldn't guess in themselves. But they need to encourage those talents in their child and point them out and and tell them they're proud of them 
without tying that to that child's value. That can be hard to do when we get all excited because this child is, you know, has got such musical talent, but they don't want to practice and or they they really fail miserably. We need to be encouraging without insisting that their value is tied to it. Many parents feel like they have to live out their dreams for themselves through their child. I didn't get to do it, but you will. Um, when children feel that kind of pressure that they've got to live out their parents' dreams for themselves rather than their own dreams for themselves, once again they feel completely invalidated, like they don't have any value as a human being. Their value only is tied up in what their parents want them to be. Um, and that's tremendous pressure that makes this child feel like he has no innate value. Respect needs to be shown even children because they're a valid person. It's very damaging when a mom or a dad is always right, never wrong, and they don't have anything that they need to learn from their child, or they can't learn something because they know it all already, and they have nothing that the child can bring to the table and learn from. When a a mom or a dad feels this way, once again, they're not building a sense of value into their child where the child believes that they have a reasonable ability to understand life, to um, add something of value to the world. Sometimes we, we tell children that they shouldn't feel that way. In fact, you'll hear adults tell other adults, you shouldn't feel that way. That's a ridiculous thing to tell someone because feelings are also valid. And it, it may not be appropriate for the situation, but it's still a valid feeling. They feel it and therefore it's valid because they're a valid human being. It doesn't reassure them to tell you to tell them, well, you shouldn't feel that way. In fact, it just invalidates their reality at all. Um, it doesn't reassure them. It makes them feel like you don't have, you know, put any value on them or their feelings. When a mom or a dad can never apologize, they're always right, the child's always wrong, it really can skew a child's view of the world because um, it makes the world a really scary place. It makes them believe that their perception is off because mom and dad are always right and if they believe mom and dad to be terribly wrong but mom and dad never apologize, it, it gives the child a kind of a sense of I, I don't really know how to perceive reality because it sure seems like mom and dad are wrong but I must I must be wrong because mom and dad can't be wrong therefore I don't know how to view my world very well and I'm not making good sense of my world and it often can leave them very insecure because they don't know how to interpret their world and it's a scary place because I can't trust what I can't see correctly. It creates a, a lot of insecurity because they don't know how to make decisions. They're afraid of making decisions without all of the pieces and they can't see all the pieces because they're not smart like mom and dad. Sometimes these children can grow up to, a, to be adults who are always still trying to find their value in life. They're trying to get a different job, a, you know, a, a cooler sounding job, a better title, a, you know, a higher salary, or um, marry a better looking woman, or get another pay raise, get another degree. They're always looking for something that will prove that they have value. 
spouses are another one who can have a very loud voice in helping us to believe that we have a sense of value or helping us believe otherwise. A, a, a husband or a wife can invalidate their spouse by just showing disrespect. Sometimes it's even unintentional, just rolling the eyes when they say something or not listening when they talk. Those are just subtle ways of, of invalidating a spouse and making them believe that they don't have the value that they should. Um, putting down their hobbies, putting down their opinions or their efforts, all of those have ways of undermining a spouse's value. And we're especially vulnerable to a spouse's evaluation of who we are because that's just what God said. Remember in Genesis 2 when he said it's not good for man to be alone. He gave us our spouses because he knows that two are better than one. But that also makes us vulnerable to that spouse because we're very vulnerable to what their opinion of us is. When we're invalidated by a spouse, it can knock the legs right out from under us, whether you're a man or a woman. Often this is a, this can be a sin of omission, not just hurtful things that are said or hurtful things that are done or selfish acts that are carried out, but when we neglect to encourage a spouse and never say um, the things that need to be said of encouragement, we're really committing a sin of omission because we are responsible to be building up and encouraging our spouse. It's one of the roles that God's given us. And we need to, to be experts, once again, on our spouses, just like we are in our children. What is it that's respectable about our spouses? And we need to be careful about telling them why we respect them. What do we find respectable about them? And I, I have been told in prayer resolution that... Um, by both wives and husbands that there's nothing about their spouse that they respect and my answer is well you better start digging deeper because they're made in the image of God and you are responsible to show them the respect that God would want them to be shown our spouses needed need, need to be praised but what if a spouse doesn't praise our the hurting one that we're walking through this prayer resolution process, they often believe they don't deserve praise. And so they begin to believe some pretty terrible things about themselves and their value. And I want to just say one other thing about um, building that sense of value. And that is child abuse of any kind, whether it's sexual child abuse, whether it's physical, whether it's verbal child abuse, Child abuse always is devastating to a child and makes them feel like they have no value and it's going to take um, it's going to take some pretty powerful messages from the Lord to undo the damage that's been done there. The last thing I want to talk about here is competency. Um, that's a, a topic that is very important when we're going to build a self-image uh, if belonging and value, if both of those things have been planted fairly well in the child, it's probable that he will feel competent as well. But if not, that child may still grow up and feel like they, they don't have a handle on life. Competency says, I, I feel pretty confident that I can handle my life in whatever 
is thrown into my life. Um, I may not have all the skills that I need, but I, I can learn them. Um, I may not know how to handle a checking account, but I think I can learn. I may not know how to drive a car, but I think I can learn. I may not know how to do plumbing, but if I have a plumbing problem, I, I know how to find a plumber. Competency is when we believe that we can adequately handle whatever life can throw at us. Um, and I have good reason to believe that I will be successful in life. That doesn't mean that we feel totally capable, but just that we have a reasonable belief, uh, belief that we can find the resources that we need when we need them, or that we have confidence that we can lean on God and He will supply all of our needs, and we believe that at an emotional level. That we have the resources that we can appeal to if we don't have them at our fingertips. What that does is enable someone to become mature, um, emotionally, spiritually, physically. A person who has a good sense of competency knows their weaknesses. It's not like they feel absolutely, totally confident that they are going to be the best in everything. They know their weaknesses, but they know that they have the ability to get stronger when they need it. Without that sense of competency... Um, a, a person always is fearing the worst, worst case scenario. And you'll find this often with, with people that they're always living in that worst case scenario. If it could happen and it's a bad thing, it will happen and I've got to be prepared for that. So emotionally they're never able to kind of come out of that box. They can't take any risks because the worst is going to happen. They sometimes have this victim mentality that I will never succeed because um, look at how I was abused in the past and I'm never going to climb out of that box. People without a sense of competency are very impatient with what they perceive to be um, incompetencies in other people. Very impatient and have no, no um, ability to give them grace when they're not perfect. They... Uh, they oftentimes have a hard time making decisions because they're so afraid of making the wrong decision. And it's better to make no decision than the wrong decision. So they might change their mind 90 times. Uh, and the problem with this is that sometimes when people have a, a terrible sense of competency, they actually do make poor choices. They make bad decisions. And I, I'm not even sure why that is unless they, you know, they just have this distorted sense of reality and so they make poor choices based on that or they're actually living out this belief that they can't make good choices and so they they actually wind up doing that sometimes when people struggle with a sense of of competency they need constant affirmation they're always looking for someone to affirm them um, and and that can be draining for people who are around them the role of a parent to build that sense of competency in a child is to allow that child to be developing and um, to allow them to not be perfect at every task that they're learning. Sometimes parents can be so perfectionist that they don't allow that process to happen. And uh, you've probably heard this saying, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well, is what that saying usually goes to. But I have a different way of saying it that I, I learned from a mentor one time. She said to me, you know, if, if, 
something is worth doing, it's worth doing poorly at first until you learn how. Someone with a, a good sense of competency is willing to be poor at something, knowing that they will get better as they gain um, experience and confidence. But when a parent is always correcting their child, always, always correcting them, the child begins to feel like they can't ever get it right. And they get feeling very hopeless, like they'll never be able to succeed in life. When a, a parent is very critical, that child feels like they're never going to be good enough. And sometimes adult children are still trying to get it right for their parent because their parent has never given them... Um, the approval that they're looking for. And so even now as adults, even 80 years old, they're still looking to prove that they have uh, a sense of competency in life, that they can succeed in life. I did prayer resolution one time with a woman who completely believed she couldn't cook, she couldn't boil water. When we dug into that one a little bit, it was because her mom wouldn't wouldn't, uh, allow her into the kitchen because she couldn't cook it right. Her mom was the one who told her she couldn't cook water. She couldn't even boil it right. And so her mom wouldn't allow her to get into the kitchen. She was afraid she'd cut herself. She was afraid she'd burn herself. So now this woman was in her 40s and had absolutely no confidence that she could cook a meal. Um, When a parent just ignores the child or the child's efforts and concentrates on their own little world and what they're doing but never acknowledges the the child and and the efforts that they're making it can also just uh, erode their sense of competency when a child doesn't receive any praise they believe they didn't do anything worth praising and that they aren't really a praiseworthy person they're not going to be successful and so they can work really hard all their life trying to get that uh, praise from a parent that approval but feel like they never really will get it a person, a, a child needs to have that growth applauded and every stage along the way having parents who are proud of them and letting them know that they're proud of them. Even Jesus had to grow in wisdom and in stature. So even Jesus was um, needing to to get better at things. The spouse also, once again I'm going to pick on the spouses because they have such a, a loud voice in in a growing sense of competency. But a spouse needs to believe in a husband or a wife, even sometimes when there's very little evidence. And it it speaks volumes to a spouse to have a husband or a wife tell you, I believe in you. And even especially when they have done something that's failed, to have a spouse that continues to believe in them, even then, is a powerful thing. But the opposite can happen too when a a spouse can... um, undermine their husband and wife by saying, I told you so. And, of course, I I think that's an automatic response in our human nature. And yet, it's it's not really something that's going to help our spouse at all. In fact, the times when we most need to hear that confidence expressed is right in the face of failure. As as you've been... um, Walking through someone with uh, in prayer resolution, a hurting one, and you're walking through some of these early relationships when they've gone through the sexual history. You've, you're going through their their um, experiences with family of origin or other relationships that have significance. 
one of the things that's it's just such hard work is you're listening, and I, I've mentioned this before, is you're listening not only to what uh, that the story that they're telling you, you're also listening to the words that they're not saying and the things that they're carefully avoiding saying. And so it can be really hard work to be listening to all of those things. But this is where you also need to be listening with a third ear as well because when you are um, taking them through those relationships, I hope that in the margins of your notes, you are also listening for messages that are coming out of those events and those relationships so that possible insecurities that are coming out of these topics that I've talked about a lack of belonging, a lack of uh, feeling like they have innate value, a lack of feeling like they are competent in life. When these messages have come out of those relationships, whether they're direct statements, whether they're just um, actions that were taken or hurtful things that were done, I will make a, a note in my margins and I will write the words, um, lie, question mark, and scribble out what could potentially be a lie that is now being believed because of what was done to them or what was not done for them. So when that same lie begins to crop up once when we're talking about a a childhood friend and once when we're talking about a father, once when we're talking about a, a boyfriend and now again when we're talking about a spouse and that same lie has appeared several times, it's quite likely that it's something that they have cho- they have chosen to believe even though they cognitively might believe something different at an emotional level they've heard it from so many important people in their life that it just feels like a truth so after I have gone through a, a person's life and we've done their sexual history we've done their family of origin we've you know done some of the other steps that we've taken them through I will now have um, a a chance to go back through my notes on their life of what we've covered so far. And I have a pretty good guess of what beliefs they have about themselves that are fairly distorted. And I, I can ask them now, this is a message that you may have picked up and um, let me ask you how true this feels. And I will make a statement about, about them that may feel accurate, uh, such as, um, I will never be fully known, therefore I'm never going to fit in. How true does that feel? Um, and, and they can tell you, well, it's, it's kind of true, except you need to reword it in a little different way. But that's helpful information to get them started because they're the ones who know what they truly have picked up from how they have been treated and, and the things that they don't really believe about themselves. We want the goal of prayer resolution is for them to feel about themselves the way God feels about themselves, to see themselves accurately the way God has actually designed them, to enjoy being all that God has made them to be. And... Um, to be able to do that without comparing themselves to someone else. That is really true humility. When scripture talks about humility and, and how we need to be humble, it's, it's not about thinking we're not worth anything. It's seeing ourselves accurately and not feeling like we have to compare ourselves to someone else. 
But our intention in prayer resolution is not just to help them have this wonderful, healthy sense of self-esteem, but um, to prepare them so that they can do the, the role, function in the roles that God has designed them to do. And that's what gets me excited about this phase of the prayer resolution process is because you can see light bulbs starting to go on as they begin to see themselves the way God sees them as they present some of these things to God in the form of, of uh, lies and to confess the terrible things they have begun to believe about themselves recognizing that it is not the truth that God says about them and opening themselves in the prayer resolution process to hear from God to speak directly to their hearts about how he sees them in a very different way than they have ever seen themselves before Well, I'm at the end here, and I just want to thank you for our time together. Bye-bye.